Welcome to Fantasties, a fairy romance for men and women by George MacDonald. This is the first part of Chapter 3. Man doth usurp all space, stares thee in rock, bush, river, in the face. Never thine eyes behold a tree. Tis no sea thou seest in the sea, tis but a disguised humanity. To avoid thy fellow, vain thy plan, all that interests a man is man. The trees, which were far apart where I entered, giving free passage to the level rays of the sun, closed rapidly as I advanced so that ere long their crowded stems barred the sunlight out, forming, as it were, a thick grating between me and the east. I seemed to be advancing towards a second midnight. In the midst of the intervening twilight, however, before I entered what appeared to be the darkest portion of the forest, I saw a country maiden coming towards me from its very depths. She did not seem to observe me, for she was apparently intent upon a bunch of wild flowers which she carried in her hand. I could hardly see her face, for though she came direct towards me, she never looked up. But when we met, instead of passing, she turned and walked alongside of me for a few yards, still keeping her face downwards and busied with the flowers. She spoke rapidly, however, all the time, in a low tone, as if talking to herself, but evidently addressing the purport of her words to me. She seemed afraid of being observed by some lurking foe. Trust the oak, said she. Trust the oak and the elm and the great beech. Take care of the birch, for though she is honest, she is too young not to be changeable. But shun the ash and the alder, for the ash is an ogre. You will know him by his thick fingers, and the alder will smother you with her web of hair if you let her near you at night. All this was uttered without pause or alteration of tone. Then she turned suddenly and left me, walking still with the same unchanging gait. I could not conjecture what she meant but satisfied myself with thinking that it would be time enough to find out her meaning when there was need to make use of her warning, and that the occasion would reveal the admonition. I concluded from the flowers that she carried that the forest could not be everywhere so dense as it appeared from where I was now walking, and I was right in this conclusion for soon I came to a more open part, and by and by crossed a wide grassy glade, on which were several circles of brighter green. But even here I was struck with the utter stillness. No bird sang, no insect hummed, not a living creature crossed my way. Yet somehow the whole environment seemed only asleep, and to where even in sleep an air of expectation. 
The trees seemed all to have an expression of conscious mystery, as if they said to themselves, we could and if we would. They had all a meaning look about them. Then I remembered that night is the fairies' day and the moon their sun. And I thought, everything sleeps and dreams now. When the night comes, it will be different. At the same time, I, being a man and a child of the day, felt some anxiety as to how I should fare among the elves and other children of the night who wake when mortals dream and find their common life in those wondrous hours that flow noiselessly over the moveless death-like forms of men and women and children lying strewn and parted beneath the weight of the heavy waves of night which flow on and beat them down and hold them drowned and senseless until the ebb tide comes and the waves sink away back into the ocean of the dark. But I took courage and went on. Soon, however, I became again anxious, though from another cause, I had eaten nothing that day and for an hour past had been feeling the want of food. So I grew afraid lest I should find nothing to meet my human necessities at this strange place. But once more, I comforted myself with hope and went on. Before noon, I fancied I saw a thin blue smoke rising amongst the stems of larger trees in front of me. And soon, I came to an open spot of ground in which stood a little cottage. So built, the stems of four great trees formed its corners, while their branches met and intertwined over its roof, heaping a great cloud of leaves over it up towards the heavens. I wondered at finding a human dwelling in this neighbourhood, and yet it did not look altogether human, though sufficiently so to encourage me to expect to find some sort of food. Seeing no door, I went round to the other side, and there I found one, wide open. A woman sat beside it, preparing some vegetables for dinner. This was homely and comforting. As I came near, she looked up, and seeing me, showed no surprise, but bent her head again over her work, and said in a low tone, Did you see my daughter? I believe I did, said I. Can you give me something to eat, for I am very hungry? With pleasure, she replied in the same tone, but do not say anything more till you come into the house, for the ash is watching us. Having said this, she rose and led the way into the cottage, which I now saw was built of the stems of small trees set closely together and was furnished with rough chairs and tables, from which even the bark had not been removed. As soon as she had shut the door and set a chair, You have fairy blood in you, she said, looking hard at me. How do you know that? You could not have got so far into this wood if it were not so, and I am trying to find out some trace of it in your countenance. I think I see it. What do you see? Oh, never mind. I may be mistaken in that. But how then do you come to live here? Because I too have fairy blood in me. 
Here I, in my turn, looked hard at her, and thought I could perceive, notwithstanding the coarseness of her features, and especially the heaviness of her eyebrows, a something unusual. I could hardly call it grace, and yet it was an expression that strangely contrasted with the form of her features. I noticed, too, that her hands were delicately formed, though brown with work and exposure. I should be ill, she continued, if I did not live on the borders of the fairies' country, and now and then eat of their food. And I see by your eyes, you're not quite free of the same need, though, from your education and the activity of your mind, you have felt it less than I. You may be further removed, too, from their fairy race. I remembered what the lady had said about my grandmother's. Here she placed some bread and some milk before me, with a kindly apology for the homeliness of the fair, with which, however, I was in no humour to quarrel. I now thought it time to try and get some explanation of the strange words, both of her daughter and herself. What did you mean by speaking so about the ash? She rose and looked out of the little window. My eyes followed her, but as the window was too small to allow anything to be seen from where I was sitting, I rose and looked over her shoulder. I had just time to see, across the open space on the edge of the denser forest, a single large ash tree, whose foliage showed bluish amidst the truer green of the other trees around it, when she pushed me back with an expression of impatience and terror and then almost shut out the light from the window by setting up a large old book in it. In general, said she, recovering her composure, there is no danger in the daytime, for then he is sound asleep. But there is something unusual going on in the woods. There must be some solemnity among the fairies tonight, for all the trees are restless, and although they cannot come awake, they see and hear in their sleep. But what danger is to be dreaded from him? Instead of answering the question, she went again to the window and looked out, saying she feared the fairies would be interrupted by foul weather, for a storm was brewing in the west. And the sooner it grows dark, the sooner the ash will be awake, added she. I asked her how she knew that there was any unusual excitement in the woods. She replied, Besides the look of the trees, the dog there is unhappy, and the eyes and ears of the white rabbit are redder than usual, and he frisks about as if he expected some fun. If the cat were at home, she would have her back up, for the young fairies pulled the sparks out of her tail with bramble thorns, and she knows when they are coming. So do I in another way. At this instant, a grey cat rushed in like a demon and disappeared in a hole in the wall. There, I told you, said the woman. But what of the ash tree, said I, returning once more to the subject. Here, however, the young woman whom I had met in the morning entered. A smile passed between the mother and daughter, and then the latter began to help her mother in little household duties. I should like to stay here till the evening, I said, and then go on my journey if you will allow me. 
you are welcome to do as you please. Only it might be better to stay all night than risk the dangers of the wood then. Where are you going? Nay, that I do not know, I replied. But I wish to see all that is to be seen, and therefore I should like to start just at sundown. You're a bold youth, if you have any idea of what you are daring, but a rash one, if you know nothing about it. And excuse me, you do not seem very well informed about the country and its manners. However, no one comes here but for some reason, either known to himself or to those who have charge of him. So you shall do just as you wish. Accordingly, I sat down, and feeling rather tired and disinclined for further talk, I asked leave to look at the old book which still screened the window. The woman brought it to me directly, but not before taking another look towards the forest and then drawing a white blind over the window. I sat down opposite to it by the table, on which I laid the old great volume, and read... It contained many wondrous tales of fairyland and olden times and the knights of King Arthur's table. I read on and on till the shades of the afternoon began to deepen. For in the midst of the forest it gloomed earlier than in the open country. At length I came to this passage. Here it chanced that upon their quest Sir Galahad and Sir Percival were encountered in the depths of a great forest. Now Sir Galahad was dyed all in harness of silver, clear and shining. The witches are delight to look upon, but full hasty to tarnish, and withouten the labour of a ready squire, uneath to be kept fair and clean. And yet, withouten squire or page, Sir Galahad's armour shone like the moon. And he rode a great white mare, whose bases and other housings were black, but all besprent with the fair lilies of silver sheen, whereas Sir Percival bestrode a red horse with a tawny mane and tail, whose trappings were all too smirched with mud and mire, and his armour was wondrous rusty to behold. Nay could he by any art furbish it again, so that as the sun in his going down shone, Twixt the bare trunks of the trees full upon the night's twain, the one did seem all shining with light, and the other all to glow with ruddy fire. Now it came about in this wise, for Sir Percival, after his escape from the demon lady, when as the cross on the handle of his sword smote him to the heart, and he rove himself through the thigh and escaped away, he came to a great wood and in no wise cured of his fault, yet bemoaning the same, the damsel of the alder tree encountered him, right fair to see, and with her fair words and false countenance she comforted him and beguiled him, until he followed her, where she led him to her. Here a low, hurried cry from my hostess called me to look up from the book, and I read no more. Thank you. That was the end of the first part of Chapter 3 of Fantasties, A Fairy Romance of Men and Women by George MacDonald. This has been Kevin Green, 
reading for the Hot Cocoa Club. Join me again for the second part of Chapter 3. Thank you. Goodbye.